Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast brought to you by SaneBox.com. Find a great deal to take back control of your email at SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. It's Friday. That means it's our Crystal Clear Podcast with Bill Crystal. And Bill, I hate to make you work so hard. I know you had no idea when you agreed to do this podcast. It was going to involve so much work and prep and following the news. I, My apologies, sir. Yeah, I had an easier job back before we did these podcasts, and I agreed to do it. And it's really been tough, though. You know, me and Donald Trump were worrying about it. I thought it would be easy. You're a tough guy. The American public is tough. The world is tough. Who knew you'd have to deal with North Korea, Iran, allies, Congress? That's an amazing thing, Congress. You know, I guess President Trump hadn't really thought about it much. It is a little astonishing when he says that the job's harder than he expected. And, but um, I, I don't know what can one say. He's a very honest guy. You know, somebody about Trump, he like he tells you everything he's thinking. It's not always wise to do that, I would say. But um, <laughs> it's sort of like, gee, I kind of thought I'd be. I miss doing things in my old life. I don't. God knows what he's thinking about there. You know. Uh, you have to say that when you find out that Donald Trump tells you everything he's thinking, you're not surprised that he's had multiple marriages. That that well, I would argue those would tend to go together. But just let's back up for a second. For people who don't know, Donald Trump gave an interview to Reuters, and among other things, he said he had no idea how hard the presidency was going to be. He missed his old life. He likes to drive, Bill. He wants let's get back behind the wheel and drive. And I, this goes back to you laughing at me when I asked you the question at the for first of the year for your predictions for 2017, who would be president one year later. Who would be president New Year's Eve 20, you know, leading into 2018? And you kind of scoffed at me. Well, I'm still scoffing. I think scoffing <laughs> at you has been a, basically a winning strategy for the two or three years we've known each other. So that's that's no longer, I guess. But that's that's I'm sticking with that. He is does seem to be sort of tired with the job and exasperated by the job. I was struck by something earlier this week that he said along those lines too. I don't think he's going to quit the job, but I think it can that can be a problem too. I mean, obviously every president gets worn down, and there God knows there is enough to exasperate you. But you sort of want a president who is thinking he can achieve things and working to achieve things, not a guy who's kind of oh God, I have to deal with this, and then maybe I'll just la- you know lash out or something like that. I I think it's worth people should read the Reuters interview from. Late, I guess it was late yesterday, late Thursday. The transcripts up online. It's not even that long an interview. He spent about I think forty minutes in the Oval Office. And it's a quick, you know, skim it. I mean, I, I, it's it's both charming in certain ways, almost, but it's worrisome. I mean, this guy's been president for over three months, and he's talking about making the South Koreans pay for a missile system. We don't sell that missile system. That's our missile system. We have troops in South Korea, and who are being protected as well as obviously the South Koreans. Uh, and so, I mean, the, with the level of kind of, uh, and he says, we think in the trade deal with South Korea, the whole South Korean stock market's been sent into a tizzy. Again, if you want to reconsider that deal, which I don't know that we need to, you know, privately deal with the South Koreans. Don't, I mean, this is a, it, it's the degree to which he just spouts off and says things. Most people learn that pretty quickly in the presidency, that there are consequences to that. I was struck by that. It's only earlier this week on NAFTA, so they had this back and forth, and he was going to abrogate it, and that he's not. And, but he, he, when he did the Canadian uh, lumber you know, uh, complaint about Canadian lumber, not a topic I know a ton about, but um, he did it all publicly. Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada had to sort of hit back and represent his constituents. And that was kind of put them in a box, I think, where it's going to be harder to make a deal. You think a guy who knows a lot about making deals knows that you want to say, do a lot of these things, give your the guy with whom you're making the deal a sort of graceful way to do it. 
there's an interesting storyline for the people who my entire life have said the problem with politics is politicians. We need to get a businessman in there. We need to get a non-politician in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always this always struck me as kind of dubious. I'm more of a John Adams guy. You know, politics is a craft, and you want people who are good at their craft. Ronald Reagan was great at the craft of politics. And the premise of the Tea Party movement and the Ross Pro movement before that was, you know, we don't want politicians. We just want regular, you know, like my, my dad. And then my dad, Simon Graham, down in Lexington County, South Carolina, is a wonderful man and ran a little TV shop and raised one great kid and me. But he would be a terrible president. And this is what you're seeing with Donald Trump, is that if you don't care about the craft of politics, then you shouldn't be in the game. And I'm so tired of hearing people say, I don't want to play politics. I just want to get stuff done. Well, that's like showing up at a football game with a basketball and you know a pair of shorts and saying, let's go. You didn't even show up for the game. How can you win when you won't even play the game? Yeah, Bill, Bill Belichick knows quite a lot about football, and he wins a lot, and he doesn't win a lot by saying, "I don't," you know, "I want," uh, I'm ignoring the rules of football. Now, you know, fresh thinking is good, and outsiders good, citizen politicians are good. I, I guess I would slightly modify what you say is that you could have a president who's kind of an outsider that can be helpful. I would say. But then he's got to hire some insiders to help him. And this is what you're seeing now with Congress. I mean, the, this White House has no one, really almost literally no one who's worked in a White House before. Almost no one who's worked in the executive branch of the government before. A couple of people, Vice President obviously was in Congress. A couple of the staffers have been in Congress. I'm talking about the top tier. You know. But And that's... That's a problem. I mean, it's just there are certain things you learn being around, working with Congress over the years, and a, a mixture of fresh blood and and, and, and experience. That's great. So you don't want just to redo everything the way it's been done. But I think they're paying a price for that. Now they can learn. They're not they're not stupid. The Trump administration, senior people, and a lot of this stuff you pick up pretty quickly. I remember when I came to Washington, everyone, oh, you know, it's going to take you years, decades to figure it out. No, you pick it up. I I, I made mistakes the first few months. I was built by the chief of staff, and then I think. I kind of got the knack of it, but it does take a while. But it's one thing to make mistakes when you're, frankly, chief of staff at the education department. Nothing is really hinging much on what mistakes you make, minor PR problems or something. It's a little different when you're the president of the United States. I do think he has been ill-served, you know, by not having in his senior councils people who have a fair amount of experience, at least on the domestic policy side, of getting legislation passed. In foreign policy, he's gone the other way, especially with the replacement of, of Flynn by McMaster. So you have people who have quite a lot of experience, maybe not quite the conventional experience, a couple of generals, McMaster and Mattis, Tillerson, a business leader, but still people who have certainly been around policymaking, defense policy, foreign policy for an awful long time. And I think you do see in foreign policy when the policy gets executed, not so, not always when Trump just pops off, but when the policy gets executed, the benefits of having people who have thought about, okay, if we're going to be have send this message here, here's what we need to do ahead of time. I think you're being too kind to the president. I'm just, at some point, if you're going to take the job, you owe it to the people who voted for you to get involved in the job, not just the fun parts. They're flying in the plane, <laughs> giving speeches and tweeting at 4 a.m. about the draft, but you know the board, you know the vote counting and the strategizing and the the you know understanding the policy well enough to promote it. He's just not doing the job of pre if if he I've achieved I've achieved my ambition here, which is being being accused of being too kind to President <laughs> Trump. So now I get it. thank you for doing that, Michael, because I've mellowed out. I'm here in Florida for a day at a conference actually, and it's 96 degrees. And so, you know, I'm chilling out. It's the hot weather and stuff. And I've just become, you know, Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. You don't want to work too hard. You don't want to. Mr. Compassion. I don't want to work too hard myself. 
exactly. Who sponsors. wants to read all these Trump speeches? I want, you want to drive, Bill? Do you want to go for a drive? Is that what you want to do? I'm telling you, if if Donald Trump were a contestant on Celebrity President, Donald Trump would fire Donald Trump. That's how bad of a job he's doing, and I, I mean that. I want to ask you about, because we haven't had to talk first 100 days, and I know a lot of people are sick of it, but I have a question for you. Who's had a worse first 100 days? President Donald Trump, uh, uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan and the Republican leadership, or the legacy of Barack Obama? And I asked that last one with these things in mind, finding out that the Susan Rice was unmasking people during his time, finding out he knew about the chemical weapons in Syria the whole time, finding out the Iran hostage uh, prisoner swap, that was a great piece in the Weekly Standard about that, was far worse than he said, collecting $400,000 for a, for his first speech out in public. I, You could argue that the Obama legacy has not had a great first 100 days. No, I very much agree with that. I think really those, those are three, none of those three has had a good first 100 days, Trump we've discussed. I do think of the Republican Congress. I mean, that has been uh, a minor fiasco. We'll see what happens. It's only 100 days. But the degree to which they just seem to have been out, not either able to execute their own plans and outmaneuvered by the Democrats. This last week, I've been watching, and I honestly haven't paid attention to every zig and zag. But my strong impression is that the Democrats have outmaneuvered the Republicans on this government shutdown stuff. Um, and last I looked, aren't the Republicans in the majority? I mean, if you have the majority of both houses and the presidency, why are you being outmaneuvered by the Democratic Party? It seems a little crazy. But they just keep saying, we don't want this. We won't vote for it unless you drop this. And they say, oh, you know, a day later, it's like, OK, we're dropping this. So I think the Republicans on the Hill have had a bad, um, a bad uh, hundred days. And I very much agree about Barack Obama. And that is a good development because not just the little stuff and the personal stuff like the being paid for the speeches. People have looked at his, you know, have come to the comprehension now that he's gone. What kind of world did he leave us with? I think it's especially in foreign policy. Domestic policy is slow growth and there are problems, big government. Uh, Trump's getting rid of some of the regulatory stuff. But the world that Obama left is a world that even the best president, someone who was very well prepared and studied and worked hard uh, and didn't to pop off would have a very tough time dealing with, and that is his legacy. So I very much agree, and that's healthy for the country going forward because it should teach people we don't want an Obama-type foreign policy. Trump may teach that we don't want a Trump-type president, <laughs> and maybe after 12 years of Obama and Trump, we'll actually get someone who's tough, who knows what he's doing, who understands uh, American exceptionalism and America's role in the world. We have a terrific cover story. I should just mentioned this in the new issue uh, that's up online by Daniel Krauthammer on uh, what makes America great. Really, I think a very fair and comprehensive look at sort of Trump's version of greatness, or let's say the Trump Trump intellectuals almost, uh, the intellectuals who support Trump, their version of national greatness, as opposed to what, what Daniel argues is a more traditional American understanding and a better understanding of American greatness and American exceptionalism. So it's a long piece. Uh, we decided to devote a lot of the pages to it because I think it's an important statement of this, a lot of interesting stuff in it. So people should read that. But anyway, um, no, Obama's legacy has really taken a hit in these first hundred days. And, um, well, you know, we spent so many pages of the Weekly Standard worrying about the Iran deal, worrying about his weakness, worrying about the pullout from Afghanistan after the surge, leaving Iraq, the defense budget. And all of that is really, uh, you know, coming home to roost now, unfortunately. And I would urge uh, listeners to check out weeklystandard.com. A lot of great writing there as well. I uh, also want to remind them that our sponsor is SaneBox.com. Their sponsorship makes this podcast possible. And SaneBox.com also makes it possible for you to take control of your email. I'm one of those people who used to 
to work for my email instead of having my email work for me. I would sit there and go through and click and delete and click, and, I, and I, then I just couldn't keep up. And I had buried by thousands of emails. And then I discovered SaneBox. SaneBox makes it possible for you to reach inbox zero. And I know because I've reached it. SaneBox sorts through your email, moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. And aside from removing all the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. Now, because we could all use some more organization in our email lives, we've worked out a great deal for our podcast listeners. Go to SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard today. And not only can you try it for two weeks absolutely free, but when you decide to buy, and I predict you will, you'll get an extra $25 credit on top of that two-week free trial because you listen to this podcast. So visit SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X. So listening to your uh, conversation about the first 100 days, I have an idea. What if we have Paul Ryan and President Trump swap jobs? Paul Ryan not getting it done. He can't get the herd the cats. He doesn't have that LBJ appeal or ability or whatever LBJ had to put the coalition together. Who better to you know span, slap backs and make deals and offer you know plane rides and send people playing golf than than Speaker of the House Donald Trump to get you to 216? And then President Ryan would actually know and understand the issues and be go out and articulate them and make the case and provide the air cover for the Republicans. What do you think? These are the kind of practical suggestions that you get the big bucks for, you know, and thank you for contributing at that. But, yeah, I, mean, I worked very hard. I've been working you're right. like two days it's, leading up to this podcast. Is the job harder than you expected, Michael? I think maybe, yeah, I think you and Donald Trump have certain things in common, but we'll talk about that later off, off, the, off the air. I mean, what's funny about Trump is he would be pretty good, I agree, at the kind of LBJ, you'd think, at the kind of LBJ backslapping, arm-twisting stuff. He needs to spend more time at it, honestly. And also, if you talk to, you know, I've seen Jim Baker, people like that up close, they also need to know a fair amount. As you can't meet, if you're going to meet with a congressman and figure out how do I get this guy on board, you need to know what he cares about, what his record is, what, what the issues, he, what you can deal with him for. Trump goes into these meetings, he's kind of, I think, affable, people say, and sort of, you know, good at a kind of superficial level of kind of shoulder punching and, hey, what's up? And how are things in your district there? But he doesn't know, hey, this guy really believes in X. And if we give him a small little something in the Department of Interior, if we tell him, we're going to work with you on this issue that you've been working on for 10 years and got no satisfaction from the Obama people on, that's what you, but that requires having a little briefing about what, you know, Congressman Michael Graham cares about and what the name of his bill is, and, and then talking to your Secretary of the Interior to make sure we can actually work out a little deal with him for that and then say, hey, look, if you can come with us on this tax bill, we understand it's a tough bill for you. We think we can do something for you on this issue you've been working on and your whatever it is, you know, in your district or something. But that does require a staff, a preparation. And that is what's striking to me. I've talked to this week, I was in Washington most of the week, saw a lot of people, many of them friendlier to the Trump administration than I, many of them well plugged in with the Trump administration and practice someone who'd seen Trump just a couple of days before. And that's what struck them. I mean, it, it's sort of the, and in this way, Trump is being failed by his team. It's not quite as much his fault. He can't do this stuff personally. Where is the kind of, you know, the outreach, the getting people on board, finding out, hey, if we need to pressure this guy, he responds to X. So if we call X, X can then lobby 
you know, this guy to get on board. They, they're not just doing the kind of nuts and bolts of building a legislative coalition, building an interest group coalition, making the case in public. It's so they do sort of believe, I guess, in the kind of Trump magic sauce. He'll say something, and of course his base will mostly rally to it, but that does not, that's not enough. It doesn't move the swing congressmen and senators. And that's what strikes me the most, it's just the kind of basic failure. It's what you were talking about at the very beginning. You need to know kind of how politics works. Some of that is knowing the issues, but a lot of that is knowing the kind of constellation of interest groups, uh, uh, opinion leaders, all the people who affect different people in different ways, and figuring out how to how to push all those buttons. Well, you, you can mock my uh, Paul Ryan for president swap all you want, but you I notice you uh, glibly skipped over the other part of my point, which is that Paul Ryan isn't doing a much better job as speaker than President Obama's president. That is president. shocking. Now, Paul Ryan has been in Washington for you know, really all of his adult life. He was a staffer before he joined, was elected to Congress in 1998. Very smart guy, obviously. Those uh, people say, well, he's a policy wonk. He doesn't really understand politics. And that's maybe he's a stronger on policy than politics, but he's been around. He's seen these deals made. The degree to which, so they have this tax plan this week. Um, they released one page. It wasn't really the tax plan, but Trump wanted to get it out for 100 days. And so they released the thing. Now, every, I was in two administrations, but every administration I've been in or certainly had watched up close, if that were going to happen, they would be calling. The people who write about economics the day or two before having them in saying, hey, look, here's the idea. Uh, we, you know, we're going to work out some – you may have doubts about this, but we're going to work this out. We would like you to think hard. We think we've got a good plan here. Get some favorable coverage. Get some of the interest groups to praise it. Get the people who you're going to be quoted in the, in, in, on TV to discuss it, discussing it. And then, of course, there are the real interest groups, not just people on TV, but people who have you know groups that have a million members or 10,000 know, percent important local businessmen. And sort of say, this will help you. Here's how. My impression is they haven't. They do, they've done none of that. I've tried to talk to people. Uh, well, I guess the plan was released Wednesday, and you know, said, so did you know about this? Did you have a heads up? Do you understand this part of it? I, it's a little ambiguous from the way they're saying. No, they don't know anything. So they kind of have this. They're in a bit of a cocoon. I think Trump said that in the interview, and I think that's right. They're in a bubble. But you can break out of the bubble, you know, any of the great thing about being in the White House or even Treasury Department or anywhere like people will take your calls, people will come come over to a meeting, and people are pleased and flattered if you sort of say, Hey, what's your opinion? But look, give us a break on this, give us a chance to make our case. They're just doing incredibly little of that, I would say. Why aren't Democrats enjoying more of a you know, tailwind? Why aren't they picking up? You can look at a specific race like uh, Georgia 6, where the candidate did you know better than you would traditionally expect, but that was kind of because of all the outside money that came pouring in. But if you look at the poll numbers, for example, the popularity of the Democratic Party is lower than the popularity of the Republican Party right now. And my question is, why do you think that is? So the, the analysis after the Hillary Clinton campaign was, well, she didn't have any positive message. She just thought she could disqualify Donald Trump. That's never quite enough. People need to know, at least generally, what the party stands for, what it's going to change, especially in an environment where people want change. So they said that for a week. Then they went right back to being a totally negative party. And again, with Trump, it's tempting to just be negative. And can anyone say what the Democrats are for? Can anyone say, I mean, I'm not being rhetorical. I'm really asking this. Is, that, is there a single proposal they have in foreign policy or in domestic policy that you can say, yes, that's kind of the way they would take the country? So I, now you can say the first 100 days, obviously, Trump dominates. So you, you're better off if you're a Democrat just opposing Trump. But I guess 
the test will be, I think, for the rest of this year. If we go through all of 2017 and they just are still, all they can do is criticize Trump, you know, if they don't have a tax reform plan, if they don't have any improvements in Obamacare even, I do think then they're missing a huge opportunity, which is fine with me, but they're missing a huge opportunity at the congressional level and an opportunity to redefine the party. And they're setting up a dynamic that could be sort of like the, the Clinton-Trump campaign. I feel like we're still in the Clinton-Trump campaign, don't you? In some ways, but I, I disagree. I, I have found one thing that uh, Democrats on the left are in favor of, and that's not letting people like you talk. They are really, really excited about shutting down <laughs> people they don't agree with. They are in love with this newfound power that they're getting uh, support from on the pages of the New York Times and the, uh, the Nation and uh, the Re New Republic, that you're absolutely right. Free speech means not upsetting people who want have something to say, too. And the, the left has rallied around that this week, for sure. And they're a lot. Well, they control the campuses. They control a lot of the educational and institutions and infrastructure and discourse, so to speak. And I think when they, they've lost the presidency, they've lost Congress, and there's a sort of uh, sense, it's a terrible sense, but, you know, let's double down, let's control, let's make sure we control the places that we're strong in and to reinforce our, 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 our power there. I, I was a young professor, assistant professor, in 1981 when Reagan became president. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, with Reagan as president, there'll be in a way more of a sense that we have to listen to some conservatives. They could maybe explain what's going on in the national government. Republicans won the Senate. Conservative ideas seem to be more respectable and certainly were more in competition to shape the country's future. It had the opposite effect, the Reagan victory on campus. They hunkered down. Like, this is what we control. We don't control Washington anymore. We do control the campuses, and we're really going to make sure we control those. I think that's really happening on the left right now. It's very dangerous. It really is dangerous. The, depriving people of free speech at the one place that's supposed to embody free speech and free uh, inquiry. I do think it could lead to an interesting split between liberals, old-fashioned liberals who still believe in free speech, uh, and kind of progressives who just want to make the universities, like every other place, a vehicle for, for advancing the progressive agenda, and they don't really care who they steamroll on the way. I, there's more chance of a split. I, I mean, conservatives are mostly focused on how far left the Democratic Party has gone, and there's some truth to that. But I think there's more of a chance of a split between, let's call them traditional liberals and modern progressives than people think. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I look at who are the people who are getting voters to show up, getting voters to email in, getting voters to donate. And it's Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I don't know where this, you know, if not a blue dog Democrats, is that what they used to call them, right? Yeah, blue dogs. Or if there was a you know, whatever a uh, you know Pat Moynihan, I'm, I'm st stretching back. Who who even Joe Biden? Where's the Joe Biden Democrat? No, I agree party? with that very much. At the national, at the leadership level, I think you're right. I mean, the question is, aren't there 10, 20, 30 percent of Democratic voters who are much more traditional? Democrat, you know, they, they vote Democrat, they voted for Democrats for 30, 40 years, but they don't really think that conservatives shouldn't have the right to give a talk at Berkeley. So, but you're right, we'll see. I mean, that'll be an interesting question. I do think it's one thing, though, it's kind of suppressing the, when you look at these polls, it's why people aren't flocking from the Republicans to the Democrats. They're not really happy with either party. That actually, if you're a Republican, <laughs> excuse me, and that actually, if you're a Republican, is probably the most heartening thing about the first hundred days of the Trump presidency. The Democrats haven't gotten their act together. Politically, we're probably where we were, really, when Trump began a hundred days ago. And so it's very much up in the air. And for Republicans who want a, a non-Trump Republicanism, there's a lot of chance to frame that, too, sort of on the side or parallel to the Trump presidency. It's a very interesting and fluid time. 
Well, I think you see an indication that ideas actually matter. And I think for a long time, uh, the left thought it was cute that people like you and, you know, Ann Coulter couldn't show up and speak and they would go, oh, yes, that's not right. But who cares? Ha ha ha. And, you know, meanwhile, the academic nutbags have been telling kids free speech is bad. You shouldn't let people talk. Controlling speech is completely reasonable. There should be a commissar of hate speech. And now those ideas are prevalent and you can see almost a sense of panic from the ACLU, which has been really pushing back on this Ann Coulter thing going, no, 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 let her speak. Let her speak. We, we never supported anything like this. I think that may be too late for them. I think they have created a generation of young people who are completely comfortable with the idea that somebody ought to be in charge of the speech around here. And I don't know how they're going to get that genie back in the bottle. I talked to someone who was at a law school, a conservative student, who put it very similarly, very much what you're saying. I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, that they, and he said he was struck when Gorsuch was, the Gorsuch confirmation hearings were going on, and then obviously when he was confirmed. There were people who said, this is what happens when we let there be a few conservative law professors. You know, they, 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 no, they teach a few students, listen to them. They get persuaded by them. They become lawyers and judges themselves. The next thing you know, you have someone like Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. We've got to stop that from happening in the future. So I really do agree that there's a, and that, that kind of totalitarian side of the left has really reared its head. And that is dangerous for the country. Yeah. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week, I almost fell over laughing when I read it. Gee, I don't understand. When I was nominated, I, I was introduced by a Republican who was very courteous. Many Republicans voted for me. The same thing with uh, uh, Kagan. The same thing with Sotomayor. Why can't we go back to those days? I'm going, lady, because those were all Demo- you know, liberal judges and the Republicans played by the rules. It's your team that trashes everyone. Can't we just go back to the good old days? It wasn't good old days. It was fundamental belief about the proper role of the institutions. Ah. The Bob Bork hearings in 1987 were a decisive moment in modern American history when the left went from, you know, making the case for the left and being unfair sure, to the conservatives, sure. obviously, but still a certain basic sense that rules held both ways to trashing one of maybe the most distinguished legal scholar of his generation, universally respected, and denying him a seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I agree. You know, I can hear in your voice, Bill, you're getting tired. It's time for your nap. You just did not plan on yes. working this hard on the podcast. So I'll let you go. Get some rest. You and President Trump certainly need it. I appreciate the comparison to President Trump. That's <laughs> Thank you, Michael. And it's always great to do this. Yes, it is. It is. I'll, I'll sleep for the next week and I'll be I'll be more I'll be ready to roll next Friday. It's the crystal clear edition of the Daily Standard podcast. We do a podcast every day, Monday through the weekend, the confab on the weekends uh, at the weekly You can subscribe to them at iTunes.com or on Google Play.com. And you get great commentary from all the writers, Fred Barnes, Steve Hayes, and every Friday, of course, Bill Crystal. Thanks again for. Oh, and if you have any questions, comments, or complaints, email podcasts at weeklystandard.com so I can send them on to Bill. Thanks again. I'm your host, Michael Graham.